0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers. It's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish, which is brought to you by BetterHelp. I want to say a big thank you to Valerie W., Porter K., Catherine K., and Moira K. for supporting the show through Patreon. I really appreciate all of you. Also, I want to give you all a heads up that I'll be taking some time off for the holidays after this episode. While I'll still be working on the podcast during my break, I won't be releasing any new content until about mid-January. I'm looking forward to spending some time with my family, and I hope you all enjoy the holidays. Thank you so much for another great year. Your support and getting to know you on social media has been awesome. Multiple sources were used to gather information for this episode. Visit Murderish.com for a full list of sources. This case was suggested to me by a friend who works in law enforcement. The case involves the death of a small child. Please use discretion when deciding whether to listen. Now, let's get into the case. This case takes us to the picturesque beach town of Rancho Palos Verdes, California, which is about 30 miles south of Los Angeles. Often referred to as RPV, The posh town is located on top of the bluffs of the Palos Verdes Peninsula, offering amazing views of the Pacific Ocean and Santa Catalina Island. According to Niche.com, for the best suburbs in which to live, RPV was ranked number 18 out of 116. Multi-million dollar estates are plentiful in RPV, and the median household income is well above the national average. Lead singer of the band Lincoln Park, Chester Bennington, now deceased, once lived in RPV. In a town where crime rates are low, school ratings are high, and surfboards are often seen on top of vehicles, murder is a very rare occurrence. On the afternoon of November 8, 2000, however, a 911 call would lead to a shocking scene. The details surrounding the victim's death would take a while to unravel, but when they finally did. The truth about what happened would shock the beach town and leave a family devastated. Join me as I walk you through the murder of Lauren Key. On the afternoon of November 8, 2000, a call came in to the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. A man reported that his daughter had fallen off of a cliff. How bad is she? I don't know. I gone down it. My daughter fell off a cliff the new You guys don't want to get dressed. <laughs> the caller was 38-year-old Cameron Brown. Brown reported to the 911 operator that his daughter had fallen off of a cliff near a nude beach below Inspiration Point in Rancho Palos Verdes. On the phone call, Brown says, You guys might want to get dressed, sorry, and then he chuckles. When the L.A. County Fire Department emergency personnel and sheriffs arrived on scene, they observed the body of a young girl laying on top of a table. The young girl was 4-year-old Lauren Key. Her father, Cameron Brown, told first responders that his daughter had fallen off of a cliff while they were hiking. He said he found her lying in a tide pool below the cliff. Cameron had picked his daughter up and brought her to a table nearby, where he laid her down. Emergency personnel immediately began examining Lauren upon arriving at the scene, but they quickly learned that the young girl had been mortally wounded. Lauren's injuries were severe. First responders observed a massive open wound on her head and a large amount of blood on her face. They checked for a pulse, but young Lauren was gone. She was declared dead at the scene within five minutes of emergency personnel arriving. Lauren's mother, Sarah Key, met Cameron Brown in 1995 at a jazz club in Newport Beach. Originally from Essex, England, Sarah came to the U.S. on a tourist visa one year prior to meeting Cameron. At the time they met, Sarah was working as a flight attendant. At the jazz club, Cameron and Sarah hit it off and began dating. The couple enjoyed the outdoors, often going skiing and snowboarding together. A few months into their relationship, Sarah discovered that she was pregnant. Upon hearing the news, Cameron was very clear he did not want to be a father. He encouraged Sarah to get an abortion, but Sarah was not on the same page. The couple sought counseling to discuss the impasse they had reached. Meanwhile, Cameron continued making his wishes known he did not want Sarah to have the baby. Sarah, however, told Cameron again that she refused to get an abortion. The couple's relationship began to unravel, with Cameron becoming more and more distant. When Sarah reached her fourth month of pregnancy, Cameron had stopped communicating with her altogether. Their relationship was over and Sarah would have to endure the remainder of her pregnancy alone. On August 29th of 1996 in Orange, California, Sarah gave birth to a baby girl who she named Lauren. Lauren Serene Key could be described as a girly girl. She had blonde hair, blue eyes, and a unique smile. She loved playing with Barbies, dressing up as a fairy princess, and having pretend tea parties. Teachers at Lauren's preschool described her as happy, always smiling, well-behaved, and having a good vocabulary for her age. Although she was social, teachers said that Lauren was cautious and not particularly adventurous. Lauren was afraid of animals and worms, and she had a fear of heights and water. She'd throw a fit if she was asked to go into a pool. Lauren loved to sing and perform, and she would often play house and cuddle up on the couch with a bowl of ice cream. Sarah eventually met a man named Gregory Marr, and the two would go on to get married. Gregory had a son named Joshua from a previous relationship. By all accounts, for the first three years of her life, Lauren lived in a loving and stable household in Huntington Beach, California, with her mother, stepfather, and stepbrother. Many people would describe Lauren as generally a happy and upbeat girl. After Lauren turned four years old, however, all of that changed. After the relationship between Lauren's parents ended, while Sarah was still pregnant, Cameron's actions toward his ex could be described as spiteful. After they broke up, and while she was pregnant, Cameron tried to get Sarah fired from her job as a flight attendant. Reportedly, He even tried to have her deported as her visa was no longer valid. Cameron's behavior escalated from there. He began leaving aggressive messages on Sarah's voicemail at work. He continuously changed his phone number and moved his boat where he was living at the time, seemingly in an attempt to avoid having her know where he lived. It seemed as if Cameron was trying to erase Sarah from his life, perhaps because he didn't want to be a father. When Sarah gave birth to Lauren, Cameron was absent. Sarah wanted Lauren to have a relationship with her father, but Cameron seemed to want otherwise. He never visited or called to speak with his daughter. Lauren wouldn't even meet her biological father until she was three years old. Although Sarah provided her daughter with all of the love and attention a child deserves, as a single mother, she found it difficult to make ends meet. When Lauren was nine months old, she made a decision to file for child support from Cameron. Upon receiving notification that Sarah had filed for child support, Cameron claimed in his response documents that he was not Lauren's father. Cameron hadn't spoken to Sarah at all since the time they broke up, when she was four months pregnant. In his first communication with her in over a year, Cameron sent a response to Sarah demanding a paternity test. Eventually, A DNA test confirmed that Cameron was in fact Lauren's father. Even so, Cameron didn't offer up any financial support. Instead, Sarah had to go back to court and finally, in December of 1998, Cameron was ordered to pay approximately $1,000 per month in child support. The support order included back pay for the months Cameron hadn't provided support for his now two-year-old daughter. The monthly child support payments equated to about 40 to 50% of Cameron's earnings. In talks with various people about his situation, someone tells Cameron that the best way to get the child support reduced was to request visitation with his daughter, who at that point he had still never met. Cameron soon filed for visitation with Lauren and then, in July of 1999, he filed for 50% custody of his three-year-old daughter, Whom he still had not met. What came next was a highly volatile custody battle between Cameron and Sarah. Although her relationship with Cameron was tumultuous, Sarah had always desired for Lauren to know her father. After Cameron filed for custody, Sarah responded, asking that their daughter be gradually introduced to her father through supervised visits. Sarah's intention was to allow Lauren to slowly get to know her father in order to become more comfortable, and then move to unsupervised visits once that was achieved. The court did eventually grant Cameron unsupervised visits with Lauren, but things were not going as one would hope. After Lauren was introduced to her father and began spending time with him, the young girl's behavior changed drastically. According to Sarah and others who knew Lauren, The once upbeat and happy girl was now filled with anxiety and unexplainable mood swings. Lauren began throwing temper tantrums, which was not typical for her. She also seemed to garner new fears beyond being afraid of heights, water, worms, and animals. When Lauren would return from visits with her dad, she didn't seem to want to talk about what happened during the visits. Oddly, Lauren also began having an aversion to wearing underwear. When it came time to leave for visits with her father, Lauren acted as if she didn't want to go. Sarah sensed that something was wrong, but she couldn't do much about it, as Lauren's visits with her father were court-ordered. Cameron John Brown was born on September 21st of 1961 in Los Angeles, California. Cameron's father, Bob Brown, worked as an investment banker, and had a master's degree from Pepperdine University. Cameron and his three brothers grew up spending a lot of time outdoors. The Brown family often went hiking and fishing and enjoyed many other outdoor activities. The Browns lived in Huntington Beach, California for years, where Cameron attended Huntington Beach High School. Cameron spent much of his time surfing, riding dirt bikes, skiing, and snowboarding. In 1978, While Cameron was still in high school, the Brown family moved to Inglewood, Colorado, and this is where Cameron would graduate from high school. Soon after graduating, Cameron moved to a remote cabin in Breckenridge, Colorado. Eventually, Cameron made his way back to sunny California. Once he settled down in California, Cameron found work as a baggage handler for American Airlines at Los Angeles International Airport, or LAX. Cameron continued living as an avid outdoorsman, and he drove a large 4x4 that resembled an army truck. While working at LAX and in his mid-30s, Cameron would meet Sarah Key at a jazz club, marking the beginning of what would eventually be a very tumultuous time for the two of them and their daughter. On the morning of November 8 of 2000, Sarah dropped Lauren off at Christian Montessori Preschool in Newport Beach, She told Lauren that her father would be picking her up from school that day. The afternoon was a scheduled visit for Cameron and his daughter. After learning that her father was going to pick her up from school that day, Lauren became visibly upset. She refused to let her mother leave, and teachers had to assist in getting her to go to her classroom. According to staff at her preschool, Lauren was very upset the entire day, and she was acting out. The young girl repeatedly asked for her mom, and never calmed down. Feeling uneasy with the way Lauren acted as she left, Sarah called the school several times that day to check on Lauren. School staff informed Sarah that Lauren was still upset. In an attempt to comfort Lauren, school staff allowed her to speak with her mom during one of Sarah's checkup calls. Lauren, however, could not stop crying on the phone. School staff later said that Lauren didn't eat lunch that day, and she even resorted to asking other parents to take her home with them. She also attempted to run away at one point during the school day. Lauren was not okay, and Sarah grew very concerned about her daughter. At this time, Sarah made the decision to pick Lauren up early from school that day, even though it was Cameron's court-ordered day to visit with her. Unfortunately for Sarah and Lauren, Cameron had also decided to show up early to pick Lauren up from school. He arrived before Sarah had the chance to. Lauren Key would be dead, not long after leaving school with her father that day. (music) Homicide Detective Jeff Leslie arrived on scene the afternoon that Cameron called 911 to report that his daughter had fallen off of a cliff. Although the incident was reported as an accident, Detective Leslie responded to the scene given the high-profile nature of the accident. Detective Leslie introduced himself to Cameron and informed him that he would be involved in the case. Leslie had a few questions for Cameron, but he wanted to get him away from Lauren's body. Leslie would later describe Cameron's demeanor as indifferent and casual. Leslie indicated that Cameron showed no emotion as he answered questions, and his answers were very matter-of-fact. During initial questioning, Cameron told Leslie that he and Lauren were sitting on a rock at Inspiration Point. He looked away for a brief moment, and when he turned his head back around, Lauren was gone. This statement indicated that Cameron had not seen his daughter go over the cliff. Leslie asked Cameron if he would go to the sheriff's station with him for further questioning, and Cameron agreed. Before they left, Detective Leslie noted later that Cameron never asked to see his daughter one last time before leaving the scene. According to Leslie, Cameron seemed more concerned with his surfboard being left on top of his car and potentially being stolen. Cameron also expressed concern about garnering media attention. When they got to the sheriff's station, Leslie and his partner wanted to videotape their interview with Cameron, but they learned the station didn't have that capability. Leslie did have audio recording equipment in his car, but he opted to question Cameron without it. Leslie thought it was more important to act quickly in getting further statements from Cameron and just take good notes. During his second round of questioning with Leslie and his partner, Cameron told the two detectives that Lauren had asked him if they could go on a hike. He also told them that he and Lauren's mother didn't get along. Toward the end of the interrogation, Leslie and his partner attempted to pull some sort of emotion out of Cameron, but it didn't happen. Instead, Cameron informed them that he had pictures to prove that Lauren was enjoying herself during their hike. When the disposable camera was processed, investigators found three pictures of Lauren, but none of them were of her and Cameron together. One of the photos of Lauren showed the little girl in the parking lot of Abalone Cove. The other picture was of Lauren near the playground, and the last picture was of her inside of a tunnel on the playground. Most of the other pictures were too blurry to make out, and others were of Cameron and his father from the day before the hike with Lauren. Cameron made sure to tell the two detectives that Lauren's fall was not his fault, saying she wanted to go out there, I just followed. During the three-hour interrogation, Detective Leslie realized something. Cameron never referred to his daughter by name and he never referred to her using any endearing terms, such as my girl. Instead, Cameron only referred to Lauren as she or her. When one of the detectives asked him why he hadn't referred to Lauren by her name, Cameron said, Lauren, I know her name. Leslie then confronted Cameron about his casual demeanor and lack of emotion right after the accident happened. Cameron told Leslie that he had expressed his emotions before law enforcement arrived, and that he was crying during the 911 call, although playback of the 911 audio would show otherwise. Cameron never cried during the call. First responders who observed Lauren's lifeless body that day described her head wounds as massive and gaping. In an attempt to elicit an emotional response from Cameron, Detective Leslie pushed a photo of Lauren's body in front of Cameron. She was covered in blood. When Cameron saw the photo... He picked it up and simply said, yes, that's her. The tone of the interrogation changed after that. Leslie began accusing Cameron of pushing his daughter off of the cliff. Cameron responded calmly and said, no, I told you what happened, and then he pointed at Leslie's notes. The interrogation ended at 3.30 in the morning. Detective Antoinette Martinez also responded to the scene the day Lauren died. At some point, Martinez was requested to go back to the sheriff's station to meet Lauren's mother and stepfather. Martinez had the unenviable task of breaking the news of Lauren's death to her mother. Sarah was absolutely crushed upon hearing the devastating news, and she became overwrought with emotion. Sarah was so distraught she nearly vomited. Sarah later recalled that no words were coming out of her mouth at the time, only wailing. Sarah's cries could be heard by everyone at the sheriff's station. When she was finally able to speak, Sarah cried out, He murdered her. He murdered my daughter, referring to Cameron. Her instincts told her that Cameron had murdered his own daughter. Detective Martinez intended on getting statements from Sarah that day, but she was too distraught and couldn't answer questions at the time. The investigation into Lauren's death continued and detectives felt strongly that Cameron may have caused his daughter's death. They were picking up on oddities in his behavior and demeanor, as well as slight changes in his story each time he told it. In his first account of what happened, he told detectives that he and Lauren were sitting on a rock at Inspiration Point, when he looked away for a moment, and when he turned his head back around, he discovered that Lauren was gone. In another recounting of what happened, Cameron said that he was sitting on a rock while Lauren was throwing rocks over the cliff. He said he had warned her not to go near the cliff, but she didn't listen. That's when Cameron says Lauren fell off of the cliff. This statement indicated that Cameron had seen Lauren fall off of the cliff. Despite Cameron's inconsistent statements and lack of emotion over such a traumatic event, it wasn't enough to make an arrest. After Lauren died... Life seemed to go on for Cameron. In March of 2000, eight months after his daughter's death, Cameron got married to a woman named Patty in a ceremony that took place in Hawaii. Cameron, still an avid outdoorsman, often went hiking with his new wife. It was during one of their hikes that about a dozen law enforcement officers surrounded Cameron and Patty with guns drawn. Although law enforcement didn't have enough evidence to arrest Cameron at the time of Lauren's death, Detectives continued working the case. On November 16th of 2003, three years after Lauren died, Cameron Brown was arrested and charged in connection with Lauren's death. Cameron, 42 years old at the time, was taken to Men's Central Jail in Los Angeles where he was held without bail. He was formally charged with murder the following day. It would be eight months before a grand jury would indict Cameron Brown on a murder charge With the special circumstances of lying in wait and financial gain, Cameron pleaded not guilty to all charges. The case was finally going to trial, but unbeknownst to all involved, it was going to be a very long and frustrating road to reach a verdict in Cameron's case. There is so much pressure and stress that comes along with everyday life, and that stress can interfere with our happiness. It can be very helpful to seek counseling when these issues arise, but meeting with someone on their schedule and at their location isn't always convenient. That's where BetterHelp Online Counseling comes in. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, relationships, trauma, LGBTQ matters, and more. And of course, anything you share is completely confidential. BetterHelp is unique in that they make counseling services convenient by offering counseling online through video chat, and you can chat with your counselor via text message, too. If you aren't happy with your counselor for any reason, simply request a new one at any time at no charge. Not only can you receive counseling from the convenience of your own home, BetterHelp services will not break the bank. Murderish listeners can get an extra discount by going to betterhelp.com murderish and entering promo code MURDERISH. That's BetterHelp.com slash MURDERISH and use promo code MURDERISH for 10% off your first month. Although Cameron Brown was indicted on murder charges in July of 2004, two years would pass before his trial would begin. Cameron spent that entire time behind bars. In June of 2006, Cameron finally went on trial in Torrance Superior Court, located in the South Bay region of Los Angeles County, Judge Mark Arnold presided, and Deputy District Attorney Craig Hum would try the case. The case drew a lot of attention, given that it involved a young girl allegedly murdered by her own father in a very horrific way. The shocking details surrounding Lauren's alleged murder were not the only reason this case garnered so much attention. Cameron Brown's defense attorney was a very well-known figure in the legal community. High-profile defense attorney Mark Garagos was hired to represent Cameron at trial. Garagos was no stranger to the limelight. He had previously represented Michael Jackson and Scott Peterson, who was ultimately convicted of murdering his pregnant wife, Lacey Peterson. After two months, in August of 2006, the trial concluded the jury was unable to reach a verdict, and the trial ended with a hung jury. The jury was split with two jurors in favor of convicting Cameron of first-degree murder, six jurors in favor of convicting him of second-degree murder, and the other two jurors were in favor of convicting Cameron Brown of involuntary manslaughter. All 12 jurors believed Cameron was guilty, but they could not agree on which charge. With that, Judge Arnold declared a mistrial and ordered Cameron to remain in custody. Deputy DA Craig Hum wasn't done with Cameron. He believed the evidence clearly showed that Cameron had murdered his daughter and he was determined to prove it. In July of 2009, three years after the mistrial, Cameron's second trial began. This time, the trial took place in the downtown Los Angeles courthouse with Judge Michael Pastor presiding. This time, Cameron was represented by defense attorney Pat Harris, who worked at Mark Garagos' firm. Cameron's second trial lasted three months, concluding in October of 2009. As for the jury's verdict, again, they could not agree on the charge. Six jurors believed Cameron was guilty of second-degree murder, and the other six jurors believed that involuntary manslaughter was the appropriate charge. With the jury being split in their decision, Cameron Brown's second trial again ended with a hung jury. As was the case in his first trial, the second jury were also unanimous in believing that Cameron was involved in his daughter's death, but they couldn't agree on the charge. Cameron Brown was ordered to remain in custody, but this time, he would have to wait even longer to learn his fate. In March of 2015, almost six years after his second trial ended with a hung jury, And nearly 15 years after Lauren's death, Cameron Brown was ordered to stand trial a third time. Again, the case would be tried by Craig Hum, who was now the assistant head deputy DA. The trial would again take place in downtown Los Angeles, but a new judge, George G. Lomelli, would be presiding. This time, Cameron was no longer being represented by anyone in Mark Garagosa's firm. Defense attorney Aaron Lobb would represent Cameron during his third trial. And this time around, the jury would reach a verdict. D.A. Hum laid out the foundation of his case and the timeline of events during his opening statement. Hum told the jury that the case was about a four-year-old girl who was murdered by her biological father, Cameron Brown. Hum said that Cameron was angry and vengeful, and that he hated Sarah for not going along with his wishes to abort her pregnancy. He said Cameron was angry about having to pay child support for a child he never wished to have. Hum said that Lauren's murder was planned in advance and motivated by Cameron's desire to hurt Sarah and not have to pay child support. Hum told the jury how Sarah and Cameron met, began dating, and soon became pregnant. He further told them that Cameron abandoned Sarah after she wouldn't comply with his wishes for her to have an abortion. The jury heard how Cameron treated Sarah after they broke up, with Cameron attempting to have her fired from her job and deported. They also heard about the threatening messages Cameron left for Sarah while she was at work. Hum said that Cameron never visited with Lauren after she was born, and he never called to check on her. He said that Sarah met Greg Marr during this time and eventually married him. Sometime after they got married, Sarah filed for child support and this is what set Cameron off. Hum pointed out Cameron's refusal to believe that Lauren was even his daughter. After a DNA test proved that she was, Cameron still didn't show any interest in the little girl until he figured out a way that it would actually benefit him financially. It was only after Cameron was ordered to begin paying $1,000 per month in child support that he devised a plan to get that amount reduced. Hum told the jury that a bitter custody battle ensued and ended with Cameron gaining supervised visits with Lauren. Hum told the jury that Cameron first met his daughter in November of 1999, when Lauren was three years old. Three months later, Sarah approached Cameron to request that he give his blessing for her husband, Greg, to legally adopt Lauren. If the adoption went through, Cameron would no longer have to pay child support. According to Hum, Cameron quickly agreed to the adoption and requested that it be fast-tracked. According to Sarah, she advised Cameron to think about it and to talk it over with Patty, who was his fiancée at the time. Meanwhile, Sarah filed documents with the court stating that Cameron hadn't shown interest in being a father to Lauren. This enraged Cameron. And again, he stopped communicating with Sarah, ending any hopes of the adoption proceeding. Hum told the jury that Cameron began making negative comments about Sarah to their daughter, telling Lauren that her mommy was going to jail for taking money from him. Hum said Cameron also filed documents with the court, alleging that Lauren was being abused by her mother. Then, Hum told the jury what he believed sealed Lauren's fate. Hum said that Cameron's wife, Patty, wanted a family and pressured Cameron to be a father to Lauren so they would have a ready-made family. This, according to Hum, was the opposite of what Cameron wanted, so the defendant put a plan in place to get rid of Lauren, and then he executed that plan. Hum explained to the jury that Cameron unexpectedly arrived early to pick Lauren up from school on November 8th of 2000. Cameron was alone when he arrived to pick his daughter up that day, and this was unusual according to Hum. He explained to the jury that Cameron's wife, Patty, almost always came with him to pick Lauren up. Hum further said that Cameron never took Lauren on hikes, but this day, he arrived early and alone in order to take her on what many people believed to be a very dangerous hike, one that wasn't fit for a child given the treacherous landscape. The area was also very secluded, which allowed Cameron the opportunity to carry out his plan without anyone seeing him do it. Hum told the jury that Cameron told detectives that his daughter slipped and fell off the cliff that day. But, Hum told the jury, the evidence would prove otherwise. Hum called Sarah Key Marr to the stand to testify. In her testimony, Sarah confirmed that Cameron had no interest in being a father. She said that when she called Cameron to tell him they were having a girl, Cameron responded saying it didn't matter since he had already called INS to report her for an expired visa. Sarah told the jury that Cameron was not there for Lauren's birth and that their relationship fell apart after she refused to have an abortion. Sarah told the jury about the drastic changes in Lauren's behavior after she began spending time with Cameron. Sarah said that Lauren lost her appetite, had anxiety, began throwing temper tantrums, and refused to wear underwear for a while. She also said that Lauren began having an aversion to walking on hardwood floors. Cameron and Patty had hardwood floors at their house. Sarah told the jury that at one point, Lauren told her she didn't want to go with her dad anymore, saying. The next time Papa Cameron comes, can I hide under the bed and you tell him I'm not here? Other witnesses told the jury that Lauren was always very happy to see her mother when she picked her up from school, and that Sarah always asked the teachers how her daughter's day had gone. Those witnesses said that Cameron, on the other hand, never asked any questions about Lauren's day and seemed uninterested, irritable, and impatient when he and Patty arrived to pick her up. The witnesses testified that Lauren always seemed timid when Cameron and Patty would pick her up and that the situation was always tense. Staff members from the Christian Montessori Preschool testified about Lauren's behavior the last day her mother dropped her off at school. Janine Herrera Saunders, assistant director at the school, said on the stand that Lauren was hysterical that day and she could not be consoled. She said that Lauren was allowed to speak with her mother on the phone but it did little to help the frantic young girl. Janine said that Lauren was yelling, Mommy, Mommy, repeatedly on the phone. Lauren's behavior was so out of character that Sarah decided to pick her up from school early that day, even though it was Cameron's scheduled day to pick her up. Unfortunately, before Sarah could get there, someone from the preschool informed her that Cameron had already arrived early and picked her up. As Cameron carried his daughter out of school that day, Janine said that Lauren put her arm out to her. That was the last time school staff would see Lauren alive. Other witnesses testified about Cameron's lack of regard for Lauren's safety, often allowing her to ride in the front seat of his vehicle with no car seat. Witnesses said Cameron often ignored his daughter and blew her off when she tried to say something, and that he made derogatory comments about her mother and grandmother too, and in front of Lauren. Some people saw Cameron and Lauren on the hike the day she died. The prosecution called some of those people to the stand to testify about what they saw. One witness said he was very surprised to see such a little girl, let alone any child, hiking that trail because it was so dangerous. The witness also said that Lauren seemed tired and out of breath, and it didn't look like she was enjoying herself. He also said that Cameron never appeared to be having trouble keeping up with Lauren. He said Cameron was always out in front of her. This conflicted with Cameron's statement that Lauren kept running ahead of him. Joe Hans, a close friend of Cameron's, testified that Cameron seemed disappointed after learning that Sarah was pregnant and that he asked her to get an abortion. Hans also said on the stand that Cameron never told him that Lauren was born. He said that Cameron never spoke of his daughter until he received a request to pay child support. Hans said that Cameron's wife, Patty, told him that she and Cameron were going to get full custody of Lauren because Sarah was abusing her. Hans believed that Cameron was lying about the abuse claims in order to gain custody of Lauren because it was in total opposition to what Cameron previously said about not wanting to be a father. Hans testified that at some point, Cameron told him that Greg wanted to adopt Lauren and that he was very happy about it. An ex-girlfriend of Cameron's who requested to remain anonymous was called to testify. The ex-girlfriend testified about Cameron's controlling and sometimes violent behavior. She said that at times, Cameron would follow her when she would leave to meet with friends. She also said that Cameron damaged her car out of anger and constantly questioned her about her whereabouts. In what was surely an eerie moment in the courtroom, the ex-girlfriend talked about a time when she left to visit with some friends in Colorado, she said Cameron was angry about this and when she arrived home after the trip, Cameron had thrown all of her belongings off of a cliff. The ex-girlfriend described Cameron as manipulative, selfish, and being someone who always planned things out. He was never spontaneous. Cameron's good friend, William Nam testified about Cameron's anger issues he said that Cameron could be very condescending and didn't take criticism well. More importantly for the prosecution's theory, Nam told the jury that Cameron was an expert outdoorsman and always took safety measures to ensure that everyone was safe during hikes and other outdoor activities. NOM's testimony likely helped the prosecution's case as it planted a question in the jurors' minds regarding how an expert outdoorsman, who always took safety precautions, could allow such a horrific accident to happen. Jerome Poinsett, who worked with Cameron at American Airlines, testified about conversations he had with Cameron regarding child support. Poinsett told the jury that he and several of his colleagues were in the same situation as Cameron, ordered to pay child support. He said they all complained about it and sometimes they joke about killing the mothers of their children. Poinsett said Cameron, however, took things to another level. He told the jury that Cameron talked about actually killing the child in order to get out of paying child support. Poinsett said he and Cameron discussed ways they could get rid of their children in order to get out of paying child support. But he said only Cameron was serious about it. Deputy Jessica Brothers was one of the first responders the day that Lauren died. Brothers said that Cameron was not emotional and answered questions in a very matter-of-fact fashion. When she asked him what happened, He told her two slightly different stories. In his first statement, Cameron told brothers that he and Lauren hiked to Inspiration Point from Abalone Cove. He said Lauren was throwing rocks on the east side of Inspiration Point, and then she was just gone. In his second statement, Cameron told brothers that he and Lauren hiked from the playground to Inspiration Point. He said he had been warning Lauren about going too close to the edge of the cliff. He said he sat down on a rock at the top of Inspiration Point, while Lauren continued throwing rocks. Cameron said he then saw Lauren fall over the cliff's edge. In his first statement, he said she was just suddenly gone, indicating that he didn't see her fall off the cliff. After Lauren fell, Cameron told brothers that he ran down to the beach below. Investigators would soon figure out that Cameron ran to a beach that was on the opposite side of the location where Lauren fell. Once Cameron got down to the beach, he said he used someone's cell phone to call 911. For some reason, Cameron left his cell phone in his vehicle before he and Lauren went hiking. Some say this was on purpose. After calling 911, Cameron told brothers he climbed back up the hill to the archery range side, which is where Lauren fell. When he got there, he saw Lauren laying in a tide pool and she wasn't moving. Cameron said he took his clothes off with the exception of his underwear, and then he took her out of the water. Cameron told brothers that he attempted CPR, but brothers said on the stand that she didn't observe any blood on Cameron's face. It was theorized that blood would have gotten on Cameron's face if he had done CPR, as Lauren's face was covered in blood. Brothers testified that Cameron offered up photos of Lauren during their conversation, saying that he could show her that she was having fun. Brothers thought this was strange given that she had never requested to see any pictures. Brothers also told the jury that Cameron didn't seem overly concerned about his daughter, but he was bothered about his boots being wet. Brothers also said that during her conversation with Cameron, he asked her who had won the presidential election, Bush or Gore. All of this took place while his daughter's battered body lay just three to four feet away from him. Another first responder testified that Cameron told him he took off his clothes before recovering Lauren's body because that's what he saw people do on Baywatch. L.A. County Deputy Medical Examiner, Dr. Chinwa conducted the autopsy on Lauren's body. Dr. Chinwa testified about internal and external injuries Lauren sustained. He said that Lauren had abrasions and contusions on her head and face. He explained that an abrasion is a scrape of the skin, and a contusion is a bruise or some sort of impact. Dr. Chinua told the jury that Lauren also suffered a massive and substantial skull fracture, facial fractures, neck dislocation, brain hemorrhage, a fracture to her right wrist, blood inside of her chest, spleen lacerations and contusions to her liver and lungs. Prior to his testimony, Dr. Chinwa had visited the location where Lauren died. He told the jury that multiple injuries and a massive skull fracture caused Lauren's death and that her injuries were consistent with a drop from the cliff and not consistent with an accidental fall. If Lauren had fallen off the cliff, the prosecution said her clothing would have been torn from tumbling down. Instead, the prosecution said, Her injuries were consistent with a single impact, as if someone dropped her off the cliff. Dr. Chinua told the jury that Lauren was dead before she hit the ground, as no water was found in her lungs. She hadn't breathed any water into them while she lay in the tide pool. The jury also heard how Cameron didn't seek to find his daughter until approximately 15 minutes after she fell. Instead, he hiked down to a beach on the opposite side of the location where she fell. He used someone's cell phone to call 911, and he wasn't frantic on the phone. In fact, he joked with the operator about being at a nude beach. The prosecution called witnesses to testify about evidence found at the scene. One witness testified about several large footprints found at the edge of Inspiration Point, yet no small footprints were found. This, according to the prosecution, pointed to their theory that Cameron picked Lauren up and dropped or threw her off the edge. The footprint evidence also went against Cameron's claim that Lauren was playing near the edge of the cliff. Dr. Wilson Carlisle Hayes, a biomechanical injury expert, testified that Lauren must have been launched from the cliff at a speed of 12.5 feet per second. He came to this conclusion based mostly on the single impact of Lauren's head with the cliff's face. Dr. Hayes said that Lauren could not have run that fast so she must have been propelled from the cliff by something or someone else. Deputy D.A. Hum had called a large number of witnesses to support his case. Now it was time for the defense to present theirs. Numerous witnesses would be called to counter some of the prosecution's claims and also to testify to Cameron's character. Although, some of the character witnesses would end up backfiring on the defense. Aaron Lobb, Cameron's defense attorney, began his case by telling the jury that Lauren's death was a tragic accident. He spoke about Cameron's love for his daughter, saying that he carried a picture of her in his wallet and bought her gifts. Lobb explained that from the onset, the investigation was biased and he highlighted the fact that Cameron's initial interview with detectives wasn't recorded, which was very convenient for the prosecution, according to Lobb. Lobb said the prosecution was exaggerating numerous aspects of their case, including Lauren's feminine nature, Cameron's anger, and his behavior the day Lauren died. Lobb further claimed that Cameron's rights were violated during the initial interrogation when Cameron's wife, Patty, told them an attorney was on the way, yet detectives continued questioning him. Lobb claimed that detectives harassed Cameron and never offered him water during the long interrogation. Lobb explained to the jury that Cameron was an avid outdoorsman and a nice person, but he had the emotional maturity of a 15-year-old, which could explain his behavior the day his daughter died. Lobb said that when Sarah told him she was pregnant, he believed she was possibly using it as a way to stay in the country since her visa had expired. He confirmed that Cameron did want Sarah to have an abortion, but suggested they attend counseling to discuss it further. Lobb said it was Sarah who made no attempt to allow Cameron to be a part of their baby's life, saying she never even notified him of Lauren's birth. Lobb told the jury that Cameron cared about his baby, but Sarah gave him no information and never contacted him until she requested child support. Lobb called several witnesses to speak to Cameron's character. Joseph Crenan, who was friends with Cameron when he lived in Colorado, testified that Cameron was mad after learning Sarah was pregnant. However, he said Cameron seemed happy after Lauren was born. The defense also called John Dietzler to testify. Dietzler, who was a good friend of Cameron's, said that Lauren always seemed happy when Cameron brought her around, and it seemed as if Cameron cared about her. On cross-examination, however, Dietzler changed his tune after D.A. Hum reminded him of the evidence they had Proving that Cameron had made threats against Sarah and the comments he made to co workers about getting rid of Lauren. When faced with Hum's outline of evidence, Dietzler actually changed his mind about Cameron's relationship with Lauren. Dietzler said on the stand that he agreed with Hum's assessment that Cameron did not seem to have a loving relationship with his daughter based on the information that came out during trial. Dr. Gunter Siegman, who has a PhD in biomechanics, was also called to rebut the prosecution's biomechanics expert. Dr. Siegman believed it was possible for Lauren to have taken a running leap and that she may have tripped and fallen off of the cliff. Although Dr. Siegman also said it was possible for her to have been pushed or thrown off of the cliff, the doctor agreed with Dr. Hayes that Lauren died due to a high impact on the face of the cliff. On cross examination, D.A. Hum was able to get confirmation from Dr. Siegman that he wasn't affirming in his testimony that Lauren had fallen off the cliff or that her death was an accident. Although the defense called Dr. Siegman to rebut the prosecution's witness, his testimony seemed to do little to help their case. An expert in brain behavior and trauma was also called to the stand by the defense. In his testimony, Kevin Booker stated that Cameron's lack of emotion and his strange behavior the day his daughter died, was consistent with the person being in shock, saying Cameron's behavior was normal for someone experiencing psychological trauma. On cross-examination, Booker admitted to the prosecution that a person could display traumatic shock behavior as a result of their own actions. In other words, if Cameron had thrown his daughter off the cliff, he could still display traumatic shock behavior. Lynn Brown, Cameron's mother, also testified for the defense. Brown said that her granddaughter was a very active young girl who ran around a lot. She also said that Lauren was oblivious to danger and spoke about a time when she nearly got hit by someone riding a bike. Brown said that Cameron was happy about being a father. On cross-examination, Hum got Cameron's mother to confirm that she wasn't aware of Cameron's behavior towards Sarah, the threats, the attempts to have her deported. Hum wanted to point out for the jury that Cameron's mother didn't have any idea about how bad Cameron and Sarah's relationship was. Before the defense rested, Lobb had this to say in his closing statement. This father, who had this duty to hold her hand or hold her, didn't do it. Honestly, I have a hard time seeing a not guilty. I am looking for what is justice. With that, Lobb asked the jury for a manslaughter verdict for Cameron. Two days after the defense rested, the jury was taken to the site where Lauren died. Five days later, the month and a half long trial was over and it was time for the jury of six men and six women to begin deliberating. After deliberating for one day, the jury had returned a verdict. On May 13th of 2015, Cameron Brown was found guilty of first-degree murder for the death of his four-year-old daughter, Lauren Key. He was also found guilty of the special circumstances of murder for financial gain and lying in wait. Detective Leslie, who had worked so hard on the case, became emotional upon hearing the verdict. He looked over at Sarah, who was sobbing. After everyone was dismissed from the courtroom, Sarah ran up to the jurors and began hugging them. The grieving mother had finally seen justice done, 15 long years after her daughter was murdered. Cameron Brown showed no emotion when the verdict was read. He just stared at the court clerk who had read the verdict aloud. The jury foreman said afterward that the prosecution's biomechanics expert was key in their decision to convict. The expert witness testified that Lauren's injuries were inconsistent with a slip or a fall. The jury foreman also said that after visiting the scene of the crime, it didn't seem likely that a four-year-old girl would be up there of her own volition. Sarah said after the verdict, Lauren was our gift from God, the best thing to ever happen to us. We just learned to live with the pain. There are no winners here, certainly not for Cameron's family and not for ours. Four months after the trial concluded, Cameron Brown was sentenced for his crimes. Several people made statements before his sentence was announced. Joshua Marr, Lauren's stepbrother, who was only 10 years old when she died, made a shocking statement. Joshua said the day before she was murdered, Lauren told him, I think I'm going to die tomorrow. Joshua also said that he became addicted to drugs and suicidal as a result of the trauma he suffered after losing his sister. On September 18th of 2015, Cameron Brown was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility for parole. He had already spent 12 years in jail leading up to the sentencing, as three trials ran their course. Cameron unsuccessfully appealed his conviction twice. In 2018, the California Supreme Court refused to hear the case. Cameron still has an opportunity to appeal his case to the United States Supreme Court, but such an appeal has yet to be filed. Since Lauren's tragic death, a large rock was placed at Inspiration Point. The rock, which has Lauren's picture on it, reads, This memorial is dedicated to Lauren Serene Key, whose life was lost on Inspiration Point. Now she dances in streets that are golden. Remember, each day is a gift from the Lord. Let her precious memory remain in our hearts forever. Lauren's date of birth and death are imprinted on the rock. After a long battle fighting for justice for Lauren, Sarah and Greg seemed to be happy and at peace. Sarah battled cancer after the trial was over, which she believes was caused by all of the stress she endured. Joshua, Lauren's stepbrother, battled drug addiction and depression after Lauren's death. Joshua is now an MMA fighter and goes by the name Joshua Danger. For a long time after Cameron was convicted, His wife, Patty, and her twin brother, Ted, argued with people online proclaiming Cameron's innocence. The arguments got very heated, with Patty and Ted often resorting to name-calling. Ted died in 2018, and since then, it appears that the fighting over Cameron's innocence has stopped. Patty eventually moved to New Jersey with her family and seems to have moved on. Detective Leslie, who worked tirelessly on this case for 15 years, finally retired and moved out of state. I'm told that Lauren's case was a major factor in his decision to retire. Detective Leslie's partner took over the case after Leslie retired and was able to get an arrest. Cameron Brown, now 58 years old, is currently serving his time at Ironwood State Prison in Blythe, California. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about Murderish. You can also leave the show a rating and review in your favorite podcast listening app. Buying products and services advertised on the show is another great way to support it. This episode was made possible by BetterHelp. Make sure to use my special URL or promo code if you buy. Head over to Murderish.com if you'd like more information about the show or me. On the website, you can also sign up to support the show through Patreon and have some of your dollars donated to the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. There's also a link to buy Murderish t-shirts and other merchandise. That's murderish.com. Murderish was mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched by Gina Mazzolini and written by me. In order to tell true crime stories on this show, information is gathered from various sources, including, but not limited to, news articles, newspaper archives, blogs, social media, TV productions, police reports, court records, books, magazine articles, direct interviews, and more. I recognize that oftentimes someone before me put in a lot of time and effort to gather information I draw from to help tell these stories. I want to say thank you to those individuals for their hard work. Sources for this episode can be found at Murderish.com. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.